This is Artworks, the weekly podcast produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. I'm Josephine Reed. On April 2nd, we were supposed to celebrate the 2020 Jazz Masters in San Francisco. Of course, it was postponed because of COVID-19. But I wanted to bring the spirit of the Jazz Masters to listeners by posting an interview with saxophonist, composer, and 2020 NEA Jazz Master Roscoe Mitchell. Mitchell is considered one of the key figures in avant-garde jazz, blending influences from everywhere, world music, funk, rock, classical, to create a complex and textured sound that is utterly his own. He was one of the original members of the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, AACM, a Chicago nonprofit organization founded in the mid-1960s that has been a major influence on modern music continuing into the 21st century. The Roscoe Mitchell Sextet became the first AACM group to record. This group eventually turned into the Art Ensemble of Chicago, which took Europe by storm in the late 1960s and continues to perform, just celebrating its 50th anniversary. Roscoe Mitchell established the Creative Arts Collective in the mid-1960s, and as an outgrowth of that, the Sound Ensemble. Mitchell also began releasing more albums as a leader and experimenting with new ways to make music. He's performed on more than 85 recordings and has written more than 250 jazz and classical compositions. Roscoe Mitchell has taught at universities throughout the country, passing down his musical knowledge of composition and improvisation. He recently retired from his endowed chair at Mills College in California, returning to Madison, Wisconsin, where he continues to compose, record, and experiment. We spoke there in early December, on my birthday, in fact. As always, I wanted to begin our conversation at the beginning. I wanted to know if music had an important place in his family life when he was growing up. Uh, music had a large part in my family. Of course, back then, I always went to church and so on like that. I always enjoyed the music in the church. Back then, a radio station would play a variety of music, not to mention that if you went to a restaurant or something like that, there were those small uh, jukeboxes where you could put money in, and we listened to a, a wide variety of music growing up. And when did jazz come into your life? Jazz came into my life through my older brother, Norman. He would sit me down to listen to music, and he had uh, these 78 recordings. And we would listen to so many great artists, Charlie Parker, Miles Davis, on and on and on. That's when I think I became more focused on jazz. And my brother, you know, he knew some of the prominent musicians. He knew all the solos that everyone played and so on. So he was a perfect kind of mentor for me at that point in my life. I know you were young, but did you ever go out to clubs and hear people? I'm just so curious what Chicago was like as a jazz city at that time. Oh, yeah, I did. But I even I, I did go out to clubs. and that. I mean, if you went to like the Regal Theater to watch a movie, uh, the movie's over, and then all of a sudden Duke Ellington's big band is on the stage or Count Basie, Ella Fitzgerald, so on and so forth. Yeah, we had that kind of experience. And then, of course, later on, uh, McKee Fitzhugh had his uh, club out there on 64th and 
Cottage Grove and during the off nights of the week there would be all these jam sessions and so on and then uh, on the weekend and that then you'd have these major stars and stuff coming in there uh, Coltrane, Dexter Gordon and uh, all of these great people so there was a lot of uh, live music. Fabulous. When did you start playing? Well I consider myself a late starter. I started clarinet when I was like 12 years old. I wanted to play saxophone but back then People would always say that, uh, well, you need to learn how to play the clarinet first, you know, and then then move on to the saxophone. So that was my first uh, instrument in high school. So that, that's a late starter. You went into the Army, and you were in the military band in the Army. I was in the military band in the Army. And in Germany. And in Germany, yes, in Heidelberg, Germany. Back then, it was a place there called the K-54, and then any time that any of the major musicians were in, if they were in Frankfurt or Mannheim or something like that, they would end up down at the cave and they'd have all of these uh, jam sessions and so on going on there. Uh, I, I think for me, the Army was where I made my decision that I was going to become a professional musician. When you were there, Roscoe, you were also taking lessons at the Heidelberg Symphony, well, from the first clarinetist at the Heidelberg mm -hmm. Symphony. Tell me what you were thinking about musically, about playing jazz and also playing classical music and how they were working together for you. Well, I've always been a person that wants to learn about music. Uh, it's a vast subject. I understand that I will never be able to learn as much as I would like to know with one lifetime. If I hear somebody doing something that I don't know anything about, I'm going to try to figure out like what that is, you know. And especially if you want to be an improviser, which I'd like to be, you know, you have to, you know, in order to be able to uh, speak, you know, in any conversation. So I'm retired from Mills College now uh, after being out there for 12 years, and now I'm back in my home in Wisconsin, and so uh, I'm looking forward to have that kind of time where I can uh, devote to practicing and, and writing music over a long period of concentrated time. I definitely want to talk about that, obviously, but I just want to just go back a little bit to after the Army, you went back to Chicago and you started studying with Muhal Richard Abrams. Can you talk about his influence on you as a teacher, but also as a co-musician? Well, yeah, I mean, uh, when I got back to Chicago, I felt that like I was kind of behind them when I got to Chicago because they were already, uh, Muhal and his experimental band, they were already studying different ways of approaching music and concepts. And uh, he rehearsed his experimental band at CNC Lounge on 65th and Cottage Grove every Monday night. And I went there, they welcomed me with open arms, and uh, they invited, Muhal invited, everybody to write for the band, you know, bring your piece in and listen to it, don't like it, take it back home and keep working on it till you like it. So it, it was not only that, it was a whole philosophy. We were all in Wilson Junior College at that time. Uh, Jack DeJeanette was there, uh, Joseph Jarman, Malachi Favors, Anthony Braxton, so on and so forth. So after we would leave school, we'd go over to Muhal's house and bother him till late in the evening, and then he would still show up on Monday with uh, a new piece for the band, and totally inspiring Muhal was. 
I mean, even after we uh, moved to different cities and stuff like that, every time we got together, it was almost like we just picked up from where we left off the last time. So, yeah, he was a great teacher to uh, many of the young people that were coming into what became the AACM. And that's what I'd like to talk about, of course, the AACM, mm -hmm. the Association for the Advancement of Creative Musicians, just one of the most instrumental organizations in modern music and certainly in the United States. And you were one of the original members. Can you talk about what the vision was around the AACM and what, what it was that you, you were doing there? Uh, yeah, the AACM had very good vision, different things uh, started to get talked about. People wanted to have more control over their destinies. They wanted also to foster educational program in the community for young aspiring musicians. They wanted to create employment for themselves. They wanted to create uh, exchange programs between other cities. We'd send ACM members down to St. Louis and and, and the uh, St. Louis musicians would come to uh, uh, Chicago to present concerts. Later on, uh, when I moved to Michigan, I established the CAC, the Creative Arts Collective, there, and, uh, and I just carried forward with me the same basic fundamentals that we had. What I found back then is that you were amazed at who would help you if you had a good idea. And back then, the University of Chicago opened its doors to us, you know, with all of these performance spaces. That's what I found amazing. Was there a particular kind of musical aesthetic, do you think, that came out of AACM or that AACM was working within? Well, I would say yes, it, it was. I mean, we were encouraged to be individual. are able to, well, let's say, tap into that part of themselves, all of a sudden they have an endless sea of choices that they can choose from, you know, uh, in creating their own uh, way in music. I've always been impressed by people who have done that. It's easier to be yourself than somebody else because if you're trying to be someone else, then you're always behind because you're always waiting to see what someone else does, and then you're going to come and do that not as good as them. So that's something that I also carry forward when I'm working w with students. And uh, now I see, you know, there's a whole generation of young musicians and so on, you know, that are uh, have been inspired by the art ensemble and so on. And uh, people will come to me and, oh, my dad brought me to the art ensemble concert when I was five or six. and all of this kind of thing. So it's a whole kind of history that's being followed, and I'm grateful that I'm still living, that I can realize and see some of these things, and I'm more inspired about learning right now than I've ever been in my life. Well, people would break away in AACM, break away is the wrong word, but they'd form their own groups and come back. I mean, it was very fluid. And you did, your sextet actually became the first to record out of, out of AACM, and 
the Roscoe Mitchell Sextet eventually became the Art Ensemble when you went to Paris. What year did you go to Paris? 1969. We went to Paris in 1969. That's when the Art Ensemble became the Art Ensemble of Chicago, and that's why uh, 2019 is our 50th anniversary. And many congratulations on that, half a century. That's pretty cool. Thank you. I have so many questions about the Art Ensemble. When you first went to Paris, you didn't have a percussionist. So all of you sort of took on timekeeping. I'm so curious about that and how you managed that and what you would use, but also how that affected the music you played. Uh, yes, we did become uh, timekeepers. The band that we had before we went to, to Europe with uh, Philip Wilson uh, on drums, but he left the band and, and went with Paul Butterfield. So uh, we never went out looking for people. What we did was we worked on our music and let everything else work itself out. We had met Famadou Don Moyer in Detroit, and so we ran into him again. So we made the decision to, to bring him into the band as the drummer. Before Moyer came in, how was the music affected by not having a percussionist? For me, I've always wanted to explore sound and I hear all of these different kinds of things. I might hear one note on the saxophone and the next note might be a bell or something like that. Interested just in the, the color, so that's definitely affected me. But then also in Chicago, you had all of these people that created these highly individualistic percussion setups and so on, hence my recording The Maze. Uh, Henry Threadgill had this um, set up of all these hubcaps of older uh, cars and stuff that he put together. Uh, Anthony Braxton had his garbage cans and so on like that. Yeah, you see this whole thread of individualism moving through this whole thing that we're talking about right now. So everything was always a learning experience for me. If I'd go to an ACM concert and it uh, was Anthony, uh, I'd go there and I'd, I'd be overwhelmed and I'd go home and try to work real hard to come back and, and, and do my concert like that. Yeah, it was like, you know, going to school. And it was always like that with Muhal right to our, the time that he left. Back to the art ensemble. There's such innovative approaches in the instrumentation of the music that you perform. That's true. That ties into, you know, just the exploration of sound and so on. I'm very interested now in becoming a person that can really develop improvisation in real time. And so that involves a lot. Uh, when Elon Volkov invited me to Glasgow, Scotland to premiere the full orchestra, version of my composition, Nonea, that to me is a, a main marking point because a piece that I started off as a solo saxophone piece and carried through many different variations now is a, a piece for full orchestra. When he invited me back to his tectonic festival in Reykjavik, Iceland, 
I didn't really want to go there with the same piece. So I wanted to come up with a way of being able to generate several pieces. So I talked to Paul Steinbeck and I asked him if he could recommend people that could transcribe some of the improvisations off of my conversations records with Craig Tabin and Kai Kanju Baku. And he did, and so I was able to premiere, I think, uh, five or six works there. And in some cases, like my students that wanted to orchestrate, I took them with me to Reykjavik, Iceland, so they could have the full experience of working with the great conductor, Ilan Volkov. So to me, what that does is that helps me study more closely the relationships that exist between composition and improvisation. It's kind of a thing where I recommend people to study as parallel. And a lot of information comes from knowing about composition and following those rules in real time. Now, did you start composing back in Chicago at AACM or even before that when you were with Muhal? You hit it exactly right. Uh, Muhal encouraged all the members of the band to write. He said, hey, just write down some of that stuff you're playing on your horn, you know, this kind of thing. And so that's where I really started to write music, you know, and then having that facility of being able to get it heard, uh, which is very, very important. And then what it does also, in terms of your publishing and stuff like that, then you can get paid for your compositions. That's also a good business move. So it has a lot of, of a good side about it. And back to what I said earlier, I'm excited. There's so much to learn right now. It's, it just inspires me. And uh, I think that maybe now I've finally figured out how to go directly to what I'm after in a more efficient way. I do want to talk about composing. Can you walk me through the process of how you compose? Do you compose on an instrument? What do you do? Well, I'll go back to this whole transcription of, of my improvisations. What I do is like, I regard that as an ongoing improvisation. If I say to you, well, I'd like you to come and be the improviser on this particular composition, if it were from my composition series recordings, I would be saying to you, I'd like you to come and improvise with Craig Taborn, Kai Kanjubaku, and myself. What that does is it allows me to see exactly what everyone was doing, and it also allows me to readjust those materials in any kind of way that I would want to do it. If you do the piece twice, you're probably going to uh, do a different improvisation, the pieces changed a little bit, so it's, it's always constantly growing all the time. When I look at Sustain and Run now, what I've done with that is I've taken the first transcription, which was in 2-4, and then I made another version of that in 4-4 and then in 8-4. So that's given me the uh, opportunity to move in from one temple to the next, you know, and, and arranging the materials in that way. 
it helps me because a lot of people in the orchestras, they want to know how to improvise. It's a, a helpful thing to people that want to cross over into that process. There's a lot of interest and people want to know that. The thing about improvisation, it's not new. All the great composers were great improvisers. Johann Sebastian Bach, Beethoven, Charlie Parker, John Coltrane. Just look at some of their transcriptions. So most exciting for me to be involved in that process and moving it forward. How many instruments do you play? Well, let's see now. Uh, if, I'll just talk about it in categories a little bit. Okay, that's you good, because uh, there are and many. And let's <laughs> just say I'm a little rusty after teaching for 12 years. But uh, I played the saxophones down from Sopranino down to bass saxophone, okay? I'd like to get back to my clarinets, and I'm going to do that. I've become very interested in early music. Uh, I played the transverso, which is a Baroque flute, uh, six holes and one key at the bottom, the recorders. And of course, the regular flute, yeah, I'm, I'm working on that also, and the piccolo. The percussion stuff, uh, we talked about that a little bit earlier, you know, where I've developed putting all these different sounds together. The larger instrument that I carry around with the art ensemble, the last time that was used was at the exhibition in Chicago for the AACM's uh, 50th anniversary. So hence, I've started to make all of these smaller instruments now, you know, so that I can take those along with me when I'm traveling and so I can keep my hands in it. You're always moving, you know, and pushing. And, and that's also expanding the sounds of the instruments that you play as well. You once, I think more than once in, in interviews that I read with you, refer to the sounds of nature when you talked about your playing, that you were looking to create something like that. Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? I was really, really intrigued by that. Yeah, that's another big challenge. Try to fit in with nature. It's always correct. So uh, trying to find your place in that, I, I mean, once in France, I went to this one place where there was this pond and all these uh, ducks and birds and different animals and stuff uh, gathered there, and I took the flute that Raphael Garrett, Donald Raphael Garrett, made for me, the bamboo flute, and just tried to fit in with that. And that's, uh, that's a challenge. So, uh, yeah, those are things that, that are there, and they're perfect. And that's what we try to get back to. My daughter, when she was first born, I mean, the notes that were coming out of her mouth were just perfect. And, very high notes and sounds and so on. So we're trying to get back to that. That's what I'm trying to do is to get back to that. If I'm playing the saxophone, sometimes I want to sound like an orchestra or something where I'm playing several parts of the saxophones. I think that a lot of that came from my relationship with uh, David Wessel, who uh, was one of the uh, first people to establish the computer music festivals in the United States. He later went to Paris to work with Pierre Boulez at IRCOM. One morning he called me and he insisted that I get up immediately and run over to his house because he'd done something that I had to hear. And so uh, I went over there and uh, he played one note for me on the computer. I said, David, you know, that's interesting. I'll uh, keep working on the saxophone and try to create a language that I can converse with the computer. You know, and back then you'd go to a concert 
and the computer people were there and they, they were on the stage talking to themselves. Who know if their program was gonna crash? You know, but we followed through that process all together. I've always been fascinated about electronic pieces and then I've tried to imagine what instruments I would take to recreate that as a, an acoustical work. So from that standpoint of view, I'm, I'm able to, to watch all of that being realized. Uh, yeah, you really have uh, some people who are geniuses with electronic music. Silence is really imp an important part of your work, wouldn't you say? I would say silence is an important part of my work. And the reason for that is silence is perfect. So every time you interrupt silence, you have to approach it on its level, else you're the one that's going to sound bad. It allows for all kinds of other things to happen. I want to talk for a bit, just a little bit about your playing technique, like circular breathing. Can you describe what that is and what it allows you to do? Okay, let's see now. Circular breathing, for me, it took me a year to learn it. Some people that I showed it to, they could get it fairly rapidly. thing about it is, is like back in the 60s, I heard this constant flowing of notes. When I learned how to circular breathe, then I could actually do that. I could play these long lines of connected notes moving. <laughs> Certainly, it allows me to be able to sustain a note and play moving lines up under it and so on. And I was doing a concert with Pauline Oliveras, and I had this high note going. And she said, well, where's, where does this high note come from? I said, Pauline, you know, I happened on it, and I decided to keep it. And I'm glad that I did, in a way, because I didn't know at that time that it would lead me into some of these textures that you're talking about now. Yeah, goodness. Mm -hmm. And the other thing, multiphonics? Mm-hmm. Can you explain that and, and how that works in your work? Yeah, that's like being able to produce more than one note at the same time. I mean, a lot of people will do multiphonics and singing along with that. You Anthony know. Braxton. Yeah, Anthony Braxton does that. He definitely does that, yeah, yeah. Robert Dick can play the Bach Chacon. I believe Thomas Buckner told me that by employing all of these different uh, methods of multiple notes. So, yeah, certainly something that interests me. Speaking of Thomas Buckner, can we just talk a teeny bit about your work with him? He was in a trio with you. You've done you know, a number of projects with him. Okay, I guess our first recording was new music for woodwind and, and voice. And the second one was uh, an interesting breakfast conversation, which was a, a record of uh, total improvised music.
So, and then we just, we just kept going throughout the years. I like that, you know? I like long-lasting musical relationships because we don't know anything about music. It's going to take a while to learn all of that. Uh, if you don't stay there and exhaust those possibilities, you miss out on a lot. You've talked about the super musician, and I'd like you to explain what you meant by that. And I'm very yeah. curious about that. I like that term. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, that's what the world wants to see, you know. I'd like to be that, you know. So uh, one that is one with music, close as I can describe it. I mean, that you've served music enough that it's, it's your friend, you know, because music can uh, lift you up in a way that nothing else can uh, and stimulate you and inspire you. It, it just uplifts me. You talk about the difference between your solo performances and then performing with an ensemble or whatever the size or, or even an orchestra. And the differences for you as, as the performer. I'm a big studier of opposites. I think if I do that, then it helps me figure out what happens in the middle. So I, I always encourage my students, you want to be an improviser, then go out and do some solo concerts where you're the only person out there responsible for every note that's being played. That helps you. That helps you learn how to develop. And then, of course, on the other end of the spectrum is the big ensemble. The world is waiting to hear that big improvising ensemble that can actually go out there and sound like they know what they're doing in a real convincing way. And like what I'm enjoying also about this period is that this is an opportunity to pull those kind of people together and to learn about that. Roscoe, you've won so many awards, too many for me to list, but you've been named a 2020 NEA Jazz Master, and I wonder what that particular award means for you. Oh, that means so much to me. I mean, having the recognition of the NEA, you've helped me out before, you know, with different grants throughout my uh, career. For me, it gives me time to do my work. That's what I need now is time. So uh, I really appreciate the award and uh, couldn't have come at a better time. And yes, yeah, so many things can happen when you keep yourself open and try to remain positive. That's a nice environment to, to exist in. I agree, and you sure have and do, and, and thank you for everything, including giving us your time right now. Thank you. Well, thank you so much for asking me. Not at all. That saxophonist, composer, and 2020 NEA jazz master, Roscoe Mitchell. As I mentioned, we were supposed to celebrate the 2020 jazz masters the first week of April in San Francisco, but because of the current health crisis, we postponed. The concert will be rescheduled. Keep checking arts.gov for updates. You've been listening to Artworks, produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Subscribe to Artworks wherever you get your podcast, and leave us a rating on Apple if you can, because it really helps people to find us. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Stay safe, be kind, and thanks for listening.